Good morning. I'm Grace, and I'm a member here at Redeemer. I serve in the kids' ministry, and just as a quick shout out, uh, this is Clove, more volunteers, so if you want to come work with me some Sundays, do it. Uh, this is Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of God. Thank you, God. All right, you may be seated. Just a really, really, one really quick thing. Um, as Ryan said uh, this morning uh, in his in call to worship, as we engage with the scriptures, as we learn together, uh, keep that word together in mind. It's very easy for us, and I'm speaking for myself as well, it's very easy for us as we hear a sermon, as we worship, uh, we, we think about what does this mean for me? And those are good questions. We want to internalize it that way. But the question we should also be asking as we have our time through the word together is, what does this mean for one another? Because we have to remember that this book of Colossians and a lot of Paul's letters was not written to just a singular person, but it was written to a church. And so that should have a direct impact on how we internalize it. Yes, Lord, what are you stirring in my own soul? Spirit, what are you convicting me of? What are you showing me? Yes and amen to that. But also, what are you showing us? That should always be the mentality of the Christian is not just me, but us, my brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so as we study and go through this text today, just keep that little nugget in mind. Uh, keep that at the forefront. Yes, what is the Spirit doing in you? But also, what might this mean for one another? So, all right, so go ahead and turn to Colossians 3. You haven't already. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 4. We are in week 13 of our Colossians study, and so we are going through this a little bit faster than we did in the first chapter. I think you remember the first chapter. I think it took us like seven weeks, so um, we're, we're picking up a little bit, but um, chapter three is, a, is just a really important part of, of the book of Colossians. And so, but anyways, so as you are turning there, one of the things that uh, what you might realize is that you will often become what you set your mind on. Your life, what you seek, what you pursue, will often take a term or be shaped on the things that you have set your mind on, the things that you are seeking after. Let me give you our dog, my dog for, as a case study. So if you were a fly on the wall in the Carroll household, around 5 o'clock, uh, when we, both my wife and I get home, uh, you will see Calvin, who's our dog. He's a mutt. He's wonderful. But um, you will see our dog just like absolutely flip out. Uh, he will just like get so excited. He jumps up. Like really he does that. If we're gone for like five minutes, he'll come back like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad you're back. I missed you. Uh, but if you see our dog at that time, you'll see him like get really excited. He'll jump on us. We'll go take him outside. After a quick potty break, he'll come back in and he's got this chest full of just toys. Um, he's seven. And so we don't throw away things in the Carroll household because one of us is frugal. Not going to say which one, but um, <laughs> We don't throw away toys. And what's so funny is, like, in this, this massive amount of toy, dog toys, he has his mind fixated on one. 
Typically, it's, it's, it's either a tennis ball or this little ducky toy. But it's, what's funny, a lot of times that will be at the bottom of the stack, and you can just see him, like, rummaging through, and he's just like, toys are going everywhere, like, like it's like, like, I don't know, some kind of battle going on, and all of a sudden he grabs what he wants. Calvin had his mind on something, he saw something, he is fixated on something, and he was going to pursue it. In his little pea-sized dog brain, that's what was motivating him. I want this toy. So, that's the sermon today. Now, but right, we will seek, we will pursue the things that we want, the things that we, we love. If you are a baker, you might always be seeking another recipe. You might always be seeking the next best thing uh, to make for your family. If you are an athlete, right, if you, if you like to, to work out, if you play a sport, you will oftentimes have your mind set on getting better, and as a result of that, you'll practice uh, you'll work out. You'll do the things that you need to do in order to get better. The, the list could go on and on. Like I said, for me, I think you guys know this. I love coffee. I will not stop until I find a really perfect good cup of coffee, which I'm always chasing. I find a good one, and then I keep chasing. Right? So we will find and we will pursue the things that we love. And a lot of times, well, what we love and what we pursue ultimately will shape us. What we love and what we pursue will ultimately, a lot of times, shape us. And here's the thing. There's a lot of good things in this world and in our creation for that God gave us to enjoy. Coffee, food, sport. There's a lot of good things that, that the Lord has given us to enjoy. But the question for our study today is, what is ultimately shaping us? What ultimately captures our love and our affection? What ultimately is helping us look more like Jesus? What ultimately has preeminent influence in our life? And so as we continue our study in the book of Colossians, last week in chapter 2, um, Paul encouraged this idea to hold fast to Jesus. And if we remember, he's giving this exhortation in light of all these other false doctrines and practices bombarding them. They were... Convin- they, they was a, there was a sect in the Colossae church that was, in, that was like, hey, in order for you to be a Christian, you've got to be practicing all these Jewish rituals and festivals. There was another sect in the Colossae church that said, hey, in order for you to be a Christian, you've got to deprive yourself. You've got to practice as what they called aestheticism. You have to do all these things. You have to stop doing these things in order for you to be closer with God. And Paul is saying none of that is true. In order for you to be close to Jesus, in order for you to be Christian, it's Jesus, and that's it. And so as he's continuing on in chapter 3, so he, said, he encouraged us to hold fast to the head, hold fast to Christ last week. And chapter 3 is a bit of a pivot, and he's, he's building off of what he said last week and is showing us, okay then, what does that look like? What does that look like? And as in verses 1 through 4 that we're going to look at today, it kind of sets out this framework for the rest of the chapter. It really is with this heartbeat, he communicates in, chapter, in verses 1 through 4, that sets, that paves the way for what he's going to talk about uh, in the rest of this chapter. And so what we're going to be looking at today uh, in verses 1 through 4 is we're going to be looking at this idea of identity. What is it that captures us? What is it that's shaping us? And then where do we go from there? So it's this idea of identity, and then what does our life look like as a result of that identity? And like I said, our, our goal is to, as, as we move through the scriptures, 
is that we want our loves and our affections to be captured by Jesus. I'm going to give you my cards right now. We want our loves and our affections to be captured by Jesus and ultimately want him to be the one who shapes us. Everything else will be secondary. Everything else takes a backseat to Jesus. So let me go ahead and read the verses again for us. And as we are going through these verses, keep in mind, what are some of the identity statements that, that Paul is telling here? What are some of the things that he is saying is true about those who put their faith in Jesus? So let's go ahead and look in verse, starting in verse 1. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also uh, will appear with him in glory. So this text gives several identity statements for the believer. This text shows different things about is true for the Christian. And I'll just go ahead and list them out for you. He says... You have been raised with Christ. He says that you have died with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. Christ is your life. And then he also says you will appear with Christ when he appears. That's talking about his second coming. That's talking about his return. Each of these statements deal with a reality of our identity in Jesus. They hit on different angles, but they're all really communicating the same thing. That ultimately, for the Christian, our life revolves completely around Jesus. There is no room for compartmentalization or categorization. And what I mean by that is, I've got my church life here, I've got my Christian life, I've got my work life, I've got my family life, I've got this, this, and this, this. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not, Jesus is just not one aspect of our life. All of our life revolves around the person of Jesus. And what Paul is communicating is that, is that ultimately Jesus is the point of our life. Everything else is secondary. Everything else falls short. Like I said, we can't, we can't like, so obviously we are a people who inhabit this earth. We have lots of different identities. We have lots of things that we are involved in. But ultimately, all those things revolve around Jesus. And we'll get to more on that in just a minute. But let me run through these identity statements really quick. And, and let's look at what they actually mean. What, are they actually, what is Paul actually communicating here? So first off, in verse 1, he says, You have been raised with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. This is a callback to chapter 2. Verse 12, when he says that you have been buried with Christ in baptism, and you've been raised with faith, to faith in the powerful working of God. This is a callback from chapter 2, and it's a contrast from what we looked at last week. And when he says, you have died with Christ, but more on that in a second. And what he's saying is, if you have been raised with Christ, you might call back to what Ryan said a couple weeks ago. Um, he said that as faith in Christ, what that means is that Christ has defeated death, sin, and Satan. Those three things held us in bondage. Those three things we were enslaved to, Jesus ultimately takes that away. Whenever we put faith in him, he ultimately um, defeats those things. And so when he, if he's defeated those things, if his resurrection proves that he defeated those things, and Paul says that you've been raised together, that means ultimately that culminates in the fact that also Jesus has defeated those things in us. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to Satan. We are no longer slaves to death. Death is just a, a blip for the Christian. 
It's just a, a little speed bump. Obviously, we still feel the effects of sin, do we not? Obviously, we still feel the effects of death. We still are tempted. We still are very much aware of our own brokenness and need, and we should be. But what he is saying is that if you've been raised with Christ, those things do not have the last say on your life because you are, belong to him. And so he says that you've been raised with Christ. Then in verse 3, he gives two identity statements, and they kind of feed off of one another. He says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let me say that again. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so in this verse, like I said, he shares two important statements. He says that you have died. What does he mean, first off, that you have died? He said, this is kind of a callback again. Paul is using this repetition. He's communicating something here that's really important. He says, so as we, though, said, as we continue, though, um, in, in Colossians 3, he, said, he, he says in verses 3 that you have died, that you, you have experienced some kind of death in your life, some kind of thing in your life in which you have now are setting aside it's a contrast to what you've been raised with Christ. Like I said, if we think about the things that used to hold us bond, that used to have a grip on us, sin, death, and Satan, when he says that you have died, he's saying now you have died to the living for those things. You have died specifically to living for sin. Look in Jesus' words um, in, in, in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus kind of echoes this same sentiment in, in his gospel. In his gospel. And he says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What you might notice in that text, in that passage, um, is that there's a warning and then there's a promise. And they're kind of combined together. Um, both of them are rooted in this idea of death. Both of them are rooted in, in this idea that something has to go. And what he's saying is so when he says that if you, have, if you lose your life, the warning is that following Jesus means that we are dying to ourselves. We are dying to the things that we once lived for. We are dying to, the, to, the, to sin. The things that we once lived for, the things that once captured our mind and our imaginations, I mean, those things are, are gone. Our, our former life is gone. We are now in submission to Jesus. And there's no part of our life that he does not have ownership over. He gets all of it. But, so that's the warning is that, hey, if, if you will, uh, he said, um, whoever does not take his cross and follow me, what did Jesus do on the cross? He carried sin, right? He, 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 he laid down his own preferences for the sake of us. But, and that's what the call of the Christian is, is that we take up our cross. We die to ourselves. But in that death, the promise is that ultimately we will find our life. True joy, true contentment, true, our true selves will shine through when we actually seek to lose our life, when we seek to put to death the things um, that once held us captive. The thing, the thing, think about it like this. The question, this might be a question that might help us think about what it means to die to ourselves. For those of you who are Christians and put your faith in Christ, this is a hypothetical thing, but where do you think you would be if you did not see the struggles of your life as a struggle? 
where would you be if, if you didn't see the sins of your life as a sin? Where do you th- what, what course and direction of your life might you be on right now? What, what would you be giving into? Where would you be looking for life? And, and I think this question helps us frame that ultimately um, what is actually good and beautiful is not the things um, that we used to think were that, but ultimately it's Jesus. And, and, and that question helps us think about that a death to yourself, a dying to ourselves, ultimately um, is the thing that gives us life. Because the things that enslaved us, though they might have the appearance of good and beauty, actually destroy. Romans says that the wages of sin is death. And so we are living a life that we are dying to our own wills. And so that's what he means, that's what he means when he says that you have died. And then he says that your life is hidden in Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. And that word means concealed, that, that you are in him. And really how we can internalize that is that uh, ultimately, if, when your life is hidden in Christ, it means that you fully belong to him and he is fully committed to you. When your life is hidden in Christ, you fully belong to him and he fully is committed to you. That's the nature of this hidden, of this being hidden in Christ. And Paul echoes this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, it's this, the, he talks about this union that we have. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation means that is a union, is a bringing together of what was once separated. And so when our life is hidden in Christ, we are brought together with him. We are considered new creations. This is who you are now. This is a part of our identity now. You no longer are defined by your mistakes. You are no longer defined by other things. You are defined by Jesus. Jesus is your ultimate identity. And because he's your ultimate identity, uh, ultimately, you fully belong to him and he's fully committed to you. And you are in union with him. You have relationship with him. There is a nearness that is there that was not once there. And it's through that nearness is where we find life. It's where this nearness when you find life. And the identity statements ultimately culminate in verse 4. He says in verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He says that Christ is your life. Christ, who is your life, your whole being. Like we said, everything revolves around him. And the context in which he's saying this is actually talking about the future hope of the believer. When Christ, who is your life, appears, that's talking about when he returns again, when he comes back to bring, uh, bring his sheep in back to his fold fully, you will also appear with him in glory. That, there's this nearness, there's this togetherness that has been communicated here. And the togetherness, like I said, being in Christ, the hope of Christ, having our daddy in Christ has past, present, and as we just read, also future implications. If we are in Christ, all of our past sins have been washed and forgiven. If we are in Christ, we now have the privilege of being called sons and daughters. And if we are in Christ, when he returns, we will get to experience the fullness of his goodness and beauty um, when we get to be with him and he, he comes back. And like I said, what this ultimately speaks to, all these things, 
that you have been raised with Christ. You have died. Your life is hidden in him. Christ is your life, and you will appear with him in glory when he appears, when he returns. What this is all pointing to is that every aspect of our life, he reigns. We don't have the option. We don't get to pick and choose which parts of his life, our life, that he gets to have reign over and which parts he doesn't. We don't get to pick and choose that, but rather we, he reigns every part of it. But what was the promise back in Matthew 10? That we will actually find our life when we allow him to have all our life. And so we think about the various identity statements, our own lives. I am an accountant. I am a pastor. I am a student. I am a soldier. I am a husband. I am a wife. I am a son. I am a daughter. I am a veteran. I am, the list can go on and on of all these different things that might mark our lives, the things that might be true about our lives, these identity markers. But the point that Jesus is making here is that whatever identity marker might be true about ourselves, all of them are secondary to who we are in Christ. Our life doesn't revolve around um, our jobs. Our life shouldn't revolve around our kids. Our life, shouldn't revolve, right? our life revolves around the person of Jesus. And all those other identity things follow that. Like I say, Christ, when Christ has made us alive together with God, he is our life. Everything we do, our work, our play, um, our family, everything revolves around him. This is, he's our identity. He is the one our life is about. So in light of him being our prime identity then, what then follows? So if this is true about us, that we've been raised with Christ, we are with God, we are sons of God, if all those things are true, what then does that our life look like? So as we read the text, you might have noticed that there's a couple of different commands or imperatives that Paul gives in verses 1 and 2. He says that if you've been raised with Christ, he then says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He, says then, he then says in verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So these two primary commands that Paul gives speak to, okay, in light of who we are, in light of our identity, in light of all these other things, our life should follow this pattern. That we should set our minds uh, and set our hearts on Jesus. And what's really interesting, what's, what Paul is capturing here in these verses is not just an intellectual thing. Hey, let's set our minds on Jesus, but it's also a heart thing. So he's speaking to not only the things that we learn and know by reason, but it's also the things that we love. Our passions. That word in, in verse 2, set your minds, means, it can also be translated as affections. Set your affections on Jesus. And so, so as we look at the first imperative, seek, it's this idea of pursuing and striving after. It's this intentional pursuit. It's this idea that I am going to fix my eyes on this thing, and this thing is, the course, is going to direct the course of my life. So he says, seek, strive after, pursue Jesus. And like I said, the second one is similar. Set your mind, set your affections. That deals with the heart. Set the, the loves of your heart on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And what he's doing here is that ultimately he's trying to show us the pattern of life that is meant to be lived in light of our identity. And what's really interesting to note uh, for my grammar nerds out there is that both of these commands 
they're written, they're written as an on, present, ongoing thing. So when he says set your mind or set your affections on things that are above, it's not just like a one and done thing. All right, I, I did that, but rather it's a lifestyle. It's an ongoing thing. I'm to constantly pursue Jesus. It's the same thing with the other one. Seek the things that are above. It's this ongoing, it's this present. For those who are real great grammaries, it's the present active imperative. Um, write that in your notes, no. Uh, right, but it's this, the, the idea that he's communicating is that this is a lifestyle thing in light of who we are. We don't pick and, like I said, it goes back to this idea, we don't pick and choose when we follow Jesus and when we don't, but rather the, the posture of our life is one in which we are always fixing our eyes on him. And so it's so easy for us. And so, so think about this for a second. Why do you think, why do you think he makes this imperative, this command, a present ongoing command? Why do you think that he's wanting them to always fi- fix their minds, fix their hearts on Jesus? Because chances are, if you're not fixing your mind on Jesus, your mind will be fixed on something else. You will set your mind on, on something else. And ultimately, if we're f- setting our mind on something else, if we're kind of trying to throw Jesus in the mix with this other thing, what ultimately ha- happens is that one thing is elevated and one thing is uh, de-elevated. And typically, when we share the throne uh, with Jesus, when something else shares the throne with Jesus... 10 times out of 10, Jesus is the one that is going to get devalued. And we get some kind of mixture of Christianity that the Colossians were dealing with. We will find something else to to fill our hearts, loves, and desires if we aren't fixing our eyes on Jesus. If we are making our careers our identity, we will serve that idol. If we are making, if, if we make our identity getting good grades in school, uh, if we make our life all about that, then we are going to spin our wheels trying to f- chase after a feeling and contentment in something that we'll never give it. I guess we have to be intentional about our following of Jesus. I've heard this phrase before, but we, it's, it's this idea that we don't drift towards holiness. We don't just accidentally look more like Jesus. But rather, it, with, with the power of the Spirit it's, and, and Him working in us, it's an intentional act that I'm going to fix my eyes on the one who ultimately has life. I'm going to shift my ways towards Him, and I'm going to, as best as I can, live a life in which these other things, while good things, take, sec, take back seat. That these things, my job does not control my life. My, like my spouse and my kids, we want to be good husbands. We want to be good spouses. But ultimately, our life is not found in them. Our life is not found in our kids. Our life is found in Jesus. And we will actually be better spouses when we make our life about him. We will be better employers. We will be better students. We will be better fill in the blank when we actually make our life about him. And what this ultimately looks like, this seeking, this setting your minds on, is this thing that we constantly come back to over and over and over again. It's abiding. We abide in Jesus. Rather, so a, a life that sets our minds on him is a life that abides, a life that always seeks to be near. When you abide in something, you are letting it cover you. You are, you are near to it. And ultimately, uh, as Jesus talks about abiding, he says in John 15, 5, and this is a verse many of us maybe have heard before, he says that I am the vine, 
You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So ultimately, we are dependent upon Jesus to produce fruit in us. And how does Jesus produce fruit within us? We abide. We, we recognize that we are a weak people who need his grace and his help. We recognize that we are a people that apart from him working in us, we will gravitate towards something else. This looks like a life of recognizing our need before him and asking him to help us, asking, us to, asking him to continue to work in us. The posture of our life is that we don't ever not need Jesus. When you wake up, you need Jesus. When you make breakfast, when you go to work, when you go to first period, when you're in lunch, when you're in athletics, when you're at your job, when you're at home, there is not ever a moment where we don't need Jesus. And so because of that, we want to be abiders. We want to always be aware of our need for him. That's the sentiment that Paul is getting at here. Because you are a Christian, because Christ is your primary identity, what follows suit is then your whole life revolves around him. Your whole life revolves around him. The normal routines and rhythms of your life are centered on him. And so the question becomes, what might it look like then for me to be a doctor and love Jesus well? What might it look like for me to be a teacher, to be a student, to be a spouse? What might it look like for me to do that thing well, but ultimately not revolve my life around this thing, but Jesus? I love how A.W. Tozer, he says it like this, talking about how Jesus is the aim, he is the treasure, he is the goal of our life. He says, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he, sees, or if he must see them go, one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things he has in one, all satisfaction, all pleasure, and all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. Christ is the aim of our life. And like, like Jesus says in Matthew, or Matthew, when we make him our life, when we die to ourselves, when we don't make anything else our identity, we don't ultimately let us, something else primarily shape us, when we let him be the one that's shaping us and molding us, we actually find life. We find joy, we find contentment, we find peace. We find all those things. So we don't have to look to the other things of this world in order to find peace because we have it in Jesus. He is the treasure. He is our joy. And Paul is encouraging us to ultimately have him be the one that our life revolves around. And so as we close our time today, uh, band, you guys can go ahead and come on up. I've got two questions um, that I want for us to think about. Two, two questions I want you to internalize. Ask yourself. Question one deals with our identity. Do you know that Christ is your life? Do you know who you are in Christ? Like, do you, I know, like, like not intellectually, but on a heart level as well. If you've put your trust in Jesus, do you know 
that your peace is no longer found in your mistakes. Your peace is no longer found in, in, in things of this earth, but your peace is found in him. Do you know that you've been fully reconciled and made alive? Do you know that right now, even if you've come into this room, knowing the mistakes that you made 30 minutes before you got here, that you are still in him? Do you know that he is your peace? Do you know that he's the source of your life? Question two, are you letting him shape you? Or another way to ask is, what, what, what else might be tempting, tempting you to be, to be shaped by? What else might be shaping you? What else, what else might be the things in your life that might be slowly trying to also share the throne with Jesus? Are you letting him shape you? Do you trust him to let you shape him? Because oftentimes when he's shaping us, he's going to cause us to let go of some things that we might not want to let go. Do we trust him? The more that we abide, the more that we pray and seek to be with him, the more that we immerse ourselves in his word, the more that we let his promises fill our hearts, the more that we will grow in trusting him. But are you letting him shape you? Are you letting his word be what defines you? Letting his word be the ultimate source of truth. And the, the, the cool thing is for us, and this is, this is the promise and this is the hope of it all, like we said earlier, when Christ is your life, when your life is hidden in him, not only do you fully uh, belong to him, but he is fully committed to you. He is fully committed to you. Not because you've done anything to earn it, not because you've clawed your way to that position, but simply because Jesus reconciles you back and made you a new creation. And this is what we get to celebrate every week when we take communion. The fact that we are always welcomed at his table if we are in Jesus. Right? As the Spirit is working you in this morning, as the Spirit may be convicting, as he might be um, showing you some things, surfacing some things that need to be surfaced, take hope and take heed of the fact that conviction is not condemnation. But rather, it's a simply a sign of a loving Father who has your best interest in mind. I had a friend say it like this week. This week. He said that conviction is not condemnation, but rather it's an invitation. It's an invitation to respond. But praise be to God in Christ that we actually get to respond. Because if we get to respond to the work of the Spirit in us, that means we belong to him. That means he's working in us. Let him be your life. It is scary. It is hard. We will let go of things that we don't want to let go of. But ultimately, in the end, we will find our true peace and joy. We will, as he, Jesus says, we will gain our life. And so, Jesus, thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you that you are the source of our life. Thank you, Lord, that you've invited us in to your home. You've let, you let us sit at your table. You welcome us. Thank you, Lord, that all these things are true. My hope and my prayer for each one of us this morning as the Spirit is working in us, might be surfacing some things. Lord, I pray that you would help us do honest work in our hearts and deal with what is it that might be shaping us that's other, other than you. I pray that you would help us, Lord Jesus, show us the things that we are trying to put our identity in 
or we're trying to find life in that ultimately, God, don't have any. And God, I pray that as you are surfacing these things in our hearts, that you will remind us that you are doing it out of your kindness and love, that it ultimately is your grace that is going to transform us by the power of your spirit, not our own muscling it out. And so, Lord, would you help us be people who rely heavily on your grace and knowing that you are a God who loves to lavish it on us. So, God, work in our hearts, work in us. We invite you to do that right now. Amen.